Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Tonight on After the JAG Corps Navigating Your Career Progression, we're talking to Don Koenig. Don spent about 14 years in the Navy before leaving at the rank of 04. And I know Don because I once sat through one of his ethics presentations when he was at Administrative Law Division, and he has since moved on to greater things, which we're going to talk about tonight. So, Don, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. Great pleasure to be here. And good well, it's to good up again. Yeah, I was going to say it's good to to reconnect with you. So your background, Don, about fourteen years in the Navy. I assume you did a little bit of everything when you were in the JAG Corps, like we all did at that rank. You bet. You know, from first duty station as an assigned defense counsel at Nilso Det Gulfport, Mississippi, and heaven knows the CBs know more creative ways to get into trouble. My brig for my clients was over in Pensacola. We were a branch of Nilso Pensacola, so I would do that dash across I-10, split toward out of there, and went to Naval Station Annapolis, where I was the law north of the Severn River, so not on the academy side, but the little naval station where the Marine barracks was, all of the pistol and rifle ranges, and where we docked and berthed all the YP craft that the midshipmen learned their navigation skills, and that was great fun. And from there, down to Medcom Midland and Naval Hospital Portsmouth. And that was during Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And, and uh, on 48 hours notice, deployed 650 of our staff to set up Fleet Hospital 5. And of course, they were all required to be deployment ready. And so 48 hours notice of the 650, 550 said, I need a will. <laughs> you know, and, you know, we went through one of those great exercises of three varieties of fill in the blank wills with two witnesses and a notary for each one. You know, and I'm asking JAG legal assistants, will these be legal? And they said, we really don't know until one of them dies and they try to probate it. Thank God they all came home safe and sound. And I immediately told them, take your time and get a real will because we don't know whether this will this will fly. And then uh, from there. From Naval Station Annapolis and down to Naval Hospital Portsmouth, went to uh, Nilso Yerswa in Naples, Italy, and then back to D.C. to Code 13. And that's where I hopped out. Now, Don, when you went to Portsmouth, it wasn't because you had any kind of medical law uh, training at that point. It was just you were a, a lieutenant, lieutenant commander, select somewhere in that right. zone and, and the billet was available. Correct. I was the number two JAG, the number one JAG. She was seven and a half months pregnant. So I knew I'd have some time to kind of run the shop myself. And none of us expected at that time the Desert Shield, Desert Storm would stop. But you're correct. Just a general duty JAG officer. Had not had the medical background training, but got up to speed pretty quickly on Federal Tort Claims Act and pulling together all those files for the Department of Justice. Now, Don, like I said, I, I got to know you when you were at Code 13, and I, mm-hmm. I remember taking an ethics brief from you somehow. And, you know, you went on, and, and for those that don't know, the, the Code 13 administrative law ethics portion, you're co-located, or at least we were, with the Office of General Counsel ethics gurus. And so you're kind of providing advice to 
SJs and stuff on ethics issues and and doing some interpretations, things like that. Uh, how long were, were you in that role? I think for about two and a half years. I worked for Captain Jim Duffy. He was the head of Code 13 at that time. And so you're exactly right. We worked closely with the OGC staff to make sure we were all singing from the same hymnal. But part of our main job was to put together that annual ethics briefing that got pushed out to everybody in the JAG Corps and for them to be able to turn and push it out to all their command leadership of any new or emerging rules, interpretations, things like that. And I asked that because your first job out of the Navy, which you had for just over 11 years, was vice president, chief compliance officer, and assistant general counsel for Mercy Hospital in Cincinnati. The question naturally comes up was, what was the connection between the ethics and the compliance that you got? What do you think, in your opinion, looking back, was what made you attractive to Mercy Health? Sure. I really think it was that background of creating and conducting standards of ethics training, healthcare compliance system, sorry, healthcare system compliance programs were kind of new and emerging. And Catholic Health Partners that became Mercy Health Partners decided they needed a corporate leader at their corporate headquarters to lead the nine regions. Mercy Health at that time, I think, was about 25 hospitals across five states, about 35,000, and they had eight or nine compliance officers, and they decided they needed a leader at the corporate office to bring together this program to begin to standardize the training, the effective compliance program standards and the federal sentencing guidelines to make sure that we were doing all of those things. And the fact that I was coming from OJAG's Office of Standards of Conduct and Government Ethics seemed like a very good fit. It was funny. A Catholic health system, still a number of sisters actively involved in the leadership, you know, and they sent you away for a day of psychological training to figure out how well you'd fit and play with the team and everything. And and I think I blew them away when I said, sister, we're a lot more similar than we are different. Our uniforms look a little different, but we're both mission-based organizations that need to get the job done. And that comes before anything else. And they kind of said, huh, I think we'll give them a chance. How big of a stretch or a leap was it making that from the practice that you had in the Navy to the compliance and the other things that you were doing as assistant general counsel? Sure. Part of it was a small step, understanding ethics training and helping people understand potential conflicts of interest and all of that. It was a lot more of a learning curve. And fortunately, I had some great staff members, Medicare billing rules, you know, wage and hour compliance with 30-minute lunch breaks. And, you know, so all of that came along because it wasn't just compliance with Medicare billing, but it was compliance with all of the various rules that applied to us, whether it was uh, FDA inspections of our blood banks to EPA inspections of our hazardous waste programs. So there was lots of areas to learn and develop in addition to standards of conduct, government ethics, creating an effective compliance program that empowered people to speak up and to know that they had avenues to report any concerns without fear of retribution. Now, Don, did you find it serving as an assistant general counsel sort of similar to being in a staff judge advocate role in the sense that you were co-located with your clients, that they were you were just a phone call away, that you were in the operations, you were in the meetings with the folks on the issues as they emerged? Absolutely. It was similar to that. And part of that was by intent. 
and the culture that I created with those compliance officers. I said, look, if you're the Mr. No or Ms. No, can't do that, compliance rules don't allow that. They will quickly figure out ways to not invite you to those meetings. You need to be able to come and understand, here's what they're trying to accomplish. Here are the danger zones that you need to avoid. Here's how we can get you to 85% of what you want to accomplish and reducing any risk of, of a compliance violation. And so by creating that, absolutely, we were able to not only just ingratiate ourselves, but to demonstrate the value of, hey, having them at the table early on helps us avoid wasting time going down a path that is not going to be able to work because of certain compliance rules. So that became very much possible. And yeah, I wore the two hats. I was at headquarters advising the senior leaders as they were coming up with strategy, but I was also the resource for those nine field folks when they ran into something that, gosh, this doesn't quite sound right. Can I bounce it off of you? And so we serve that role also. How big was the legal office that you were working in at the time? I think when I first joined, it was the general counsel and me. By the time I moved to Youngstown 10 years later, I believe we had at least three full-time associate general counsels in the corporate office. And then each of those oper operational regions had at least one or two counsel out in the field, as well as every one of those nine regions had at least one compliance officer. And across the nine, we probably had five compliance auditors also. So you were going to pick up other areas of the law in such a small setting, whether you wanted to or not. Sure. So after 11 years, you made the jump from Cincinnati to, to Youngstown and you took on a new role. So tell us, uh, it looks like it was executive vice president and regional chief operating officer at Mercy Health. How yeah. did that come about and why did you make that move? So as part of Mercy's executive development program, I'd been selected for their leadership program where you spend two years working for the working with the Center for Creative Leadership out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina to help develop your skills, understand how you assess problems, understand your default way of communicating with others and learning other tools. And part of that involved taking you outside of your comfort zone and requiring you to work on a six to nine month project. For me, because I was in staff support and legal services, they put me directly into operations along with a team of three or four other rising seniors who were going through that training. And it was great fun. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. And Mercy had a very strong commitment to try to look internally to those graduates of that leadership development program when they had new openings come. So one of my colleagues in my class of that creative leadership left Mercy to become the CEO of the hospital system down in Augusta, Georgia. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. So they've got the president of the flagship hospital in Youngstown and the regional chief operating officer of the three hospital, one of those nine regions of Mercy. I wonder if they would consider me. And it was really interesting. You know, when they first asked that regional CEO, he said, he's a compliance officer. What does he know about hospital operations? But the folks at headquarters said, you know, He's pretty smart and bright. We think he can do this. So why don't we do this in kind of a no-fault way? We'll assign him for six months, and both of you decide if this is a good fit. 
Don's done a good job training his number two to step in and lead the compliance program. If at the end of six months, you don't feel this is the right fit, Don will come back to headquarters to do the compliance program further. So I came up to Youngstown and had only met the CEO a couple of times when I was up on compliance visits. Very nice man. And so I turned to work becoming the, the leader of their flagship hospital, about 2,800 employees there in a level one trauma teaching hospital, residency programs, all of that. Uh, Less than 90 days in, the president, Bob, came to me and said, you can put the house on the market. This is working out just fine. And so I ended up moving there and was there for 10 years. It was a great experience taking that shift from legal and command support, essentially, into actual operational leadership. And we we did some great things there. It It was really a lot of fun. Like so, what what were the issues that kept you up? What were the issues that you were dealing with there? Just a sampling. So Youngstown, Ohio is a city that had a population of 175,000 in the mid-60s. When I moved there after all the mills had closed, it was a city of 75,000. Wow. Block after block of abandoned homes that were slowly being plowed down to create a green palette for what's next. St. Elizabeth's in Youngstown sits in Mahoning County. The local vernacular is it's the Moaning Valley, not the Mahoning Valley. Everybody looked backwards at the good old days and no one was able to look forward. So that was part of what I started is that we were exactly halfway between Pittsburgh and Cleveland and people with money and time didn't come to St. E's Youngstown. They went to Cleveland Clinic or they went to UPMC in Pittsburgh. And so I said, we have to build clinical excellence in areas Cardiac's a great start. Sure, you can go to Cleveland Clinic for your scheduled heart valve replacement, but if you're having a heart attack, you can't get to Cleveland or Pittsburgh. We need to demonstrate that we can do the emerging care so well here that they might consider sticking with us when it's the scheduled care. And we did it. And so we kept winning these national awards and everyone just wanted to kind of keep it quiet. The original sponsoring sisters of that hospital are the Sisters of Humility of Mary. And I used to tell everyone, you're taking that first word, humility, a little much. It's not (laughs) bragging if someone else is telling great things. So I started sending blasts to the whole staff. Every award we won always preceded the first line is, Bob, we're going to need a bigger trophy case. And I started getting the people to believe in themselves that we could do world-class medicine in a smaller community that would give them comparable access to healthcare without the hour and a half drive each way to either of those big cities. So we built heart and vascular. We already had a great trauma program. We built cancer care, built one of the best women's breast care centers in the country. And we started winning market share back from Cleveland and Pittsburgh and people in the Valley. So it was just a great journey to show them that we could achieve greatness that would make them all proud to say, hey, I live in the town where St. E's is. So this is probably a poor analogy, but this is essentially like being plucked out of the legal office at Portsmouth Naval Hospital and being put in a position where you're running operations and trying to grow the hospital writ large. Sure. You know, that just strikes a chord because we're trying to, you know, as we go across the brow to civilian uh, employment, to understand the potential we have out there as judge advocates. And, and that's just an amazing, amazing jump. Sure. So, you know, those key things are if you are a natural 
innate leader. You like leading, leading people, inspiring them to do their greatest work. And by nature, the way we're trained as lawyers, we're natural problem solvers. So the idea of understanding and getting all the inputs from the diverse expertise, clinical and otherwise, to say, this problem has been bedeviling us for a while. What do you think is the best way for us to move forward? And, you know, like Clausewitz on war, you can't wait till complete clarity. You get the best information you can, you make the best decision you can, and you move forward. Yeah, if, if some bit of information comes back that causes you to completely change, all right, let's reassess. But little tweaks along the way, it's like, nope, we, are, we understand what our North Star is, where we're going, and we're going to push forward. And in true SJA or Navy experience, you only held that job for nine years before you moved on to your current job, isn't it? So you stayed at, in that COO job for nine years, and then you made the move. And what move was that, Don? Exactly. I had the chance to retire early. I was turning 60. And they were making a leadership change in Youngstown. So I had a little time to, to think about, you know, I, Sherry and I always joked that eventually I wanted to be the guy with the big white glove at the exit gate at Disney saying, thank, have a magical day. Bye-bye. Come again. I didn't think I was quite ready for that. But our daughter, son-in-law and one and a half grandchildren, now two, they lived on the Virginia, North Carolina border and said, ah, is it time to move south? We really love our house and friends here in the Youngstown area, but I had begun reading about how VA, with the arrival of the Mission Act, which was the result of the 2014 access disaster out in Phoenix, that John McCain and others led legislation that was passed to say, if VA can't see you soon enough within 30 days for a specialist, if VA is more than a 60-minute drive away for a specialist. You veterans are empowered now to go to any civilian healthcare on the VA's nickel. So the VA recognized, gosh, it's a whole new world. We're no longer the monolithic phone company. You'll take what we give you because we're your only choice. Suddenly they said, you know, we need to find some leaders who understand what it's like to fight for the hearts and minds and loyalty of healthcare customers. So they were looking for people with some experience in civilian healthcare leadership. And for me, it worked out perfectly with my prior military experience, that JAG experience and hospital presidency leadership. And so the first day I looked, okay, we started looking south. And what are the first two jobs that come up? The leader of VA Richmond, 70 miles north of where my kids live, and VA Pittsburgh, 70 miles from where we live in Canfield, Ohio, and Sherry in my hometown. We both grew up in Pittsburgh. I threw my hat into both, was a finalist for both, and ultimately came down to, you know, which one would you rather do? And I said, I think I'll stay in Pittsburgh. Not sure the kids are going to stay in rural Southern Virginia. So let's just do Pittsburgh. And that was three and a half years ago. And I have been having a blast doing that. You get frustrated sometimes by government bureaucracy. You just walk down to the lobby, sit down next to a veteran who's waiting for an appointment, strike up a conversation, hear their story, and it restores you. Oh, yeah, this is why we do what we do. These are the people we are here to serve. So it's a, it's a great opportunity. VA Pittsburgh, where I'm at, is the largest VA transplant hospital in the nation. Livers, kidneys, the only one that does small bowel transplants. So it is a major big deal. 130 dedicated people doing advanced medical and clinical research. 
So it, it's a great, great experience, and I'm having a ball. I'd been doing it a year, and I was asked to step away for nine months and come to VA headquarters, where I was special advisor to the Undersecretary of Health for Integrated Veteran Care. VA, the way it grew and after the Mission Act, had two completely different systems for accessing VA care. A very small team that helps you get your appointment within VA, and then this much larger team that was used to get you the right care in the civilian community, if that was what was most appropriate. And they sometimes worked at cross-purposes. So the Undersecretary of Health said, I've been trying to merge these offices for two and a half years without success. You're an outsider. I think you know how to do this. You have no dog in this fight. Come make this work. So I spent nine months there developing the plan that is now being implemented where we merged those 7,500 people in the headquarters into a single integrated team. The whole goal is to help us get veterans connected to the right best care they need, whether inside or outside of VA, as fast as we can. So it's been a great, great trip. Yeah, I'm just sitting here thinking about your journey. I mean, you're in the Navy, you're having fun. The career doesn't work out quite the way that you hoped it would. And you have the opportunity to, to retire early or leave the court early. You did. And that job found you legal work in the, in the civilian world, which turned into an operational job, which allowed you to come back in uh, to the VA, into government as the SES, not in a legal role but right. in an operational executive role that had you done 20 years plus and then retired and looked to go into government work or even civilian work, you'd been lucky to have been able to get in as a, as a lawyer only. And that's where you would still have probably been until the day you retire. Right. And the other great secret for me, I did 13 and a half years active duty. I become an SCS. I write the check and buy all my military time. So I'm now at 17 years time in grade as an SES. Wow. It all works out. Wow. Well, you're, you're looking great. What suggestions would you have for people that are approaching the end of their time in the Navy as they go out? I mean, looking at myself, there's a certain amount of trepidation with making that jump to the civilian corporate world. Personally, you know, I've done a lot of ethical work uh, or ethics work in my career. But, you know, someone said, hey, it wouldn't hurt for you to go out and get that certified ethics and compliance certificate mm -hmm. so that they know that you, you know, it's a different basis, but you know what they're talking about. What, what recommendations or suggestions would you have for folks approaching that decision point? You know, if you've had a substantial career in the JAG Corps like I did, you have an opportunity to reflect a little bit. What did I really like? What did I really enjoy doing? And I really did enjoy the healthcare work, not only at Naval Hospital Portsmouth, but when I was at Nilso Yerswa, uh, you know, the Naval Hospital up on the hill was my client because I had that little bit of background. And even when I came back to JAG Code 13, I was working with the BUMED lawyers on coming up with how we were going to deal with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and active duty Navy folks who may be members of tribes and do peyote and how we <laughs> had to accommodate and, you know, all of that fun stuff. So, you know, figure out what you like doing and then talk with one or two people who are doing that kind of work on the civilian world. Primarily, I think to help you draw, oh yeah, I do have that skill set. Oh, that is somewhat similar to what I did in the JAG Corps to help you tailor that resume to be able to resonate well with civilian industry 
in either civilian law firms or civilian corporations so that they understand that versatility of bringing both military experience, but nonetheless, applicable leadership and legal skills that apply to their business model. Do you feel that people coming out of the military, judge advocates coming out of the military, have an advantage with the leadership component, as others have told me? I really think so. All of us who rise to any position of leadership within the JAG Corps, that tends to be viewed extremely favorably by civilian employers, that they know how to bring teams together, to focus on an objective, to inspire people to do their greatest, to hold folks accountable if they're not pulling their weight on a team. All of that is kind of inherent with being an effective lieutenant commander, commander, or captain in the military services. So I think there are an awful lot of industries and organizations that recognize there's a leg up. I don't have to teach a lot of those team leadership skills because that really does come baked in to anyone who's had a successful military officer career. So when you were at VA headquarters, did you come across any former Navy JAGs at the headquarters or anywhere else while you were working? Let's see, no Navy JAGs there. I came across my chief medical officer from the Enterprise while we were in the yards in Newport News. So that was great. The military JAGs that I've come across are in my position at VA Pittsburgh. One of the congressmen who regularly visits us is Congressman Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania a former Marine and a JAG officer who's now an elected member of Congress getting ready to leave Congress. And he was one of those folks who would occasionally, his staff member would call and say, hey, Congressman has some time, he wants to come. He didn't want a dog and pony show. He didn't want a presentation by me. He wanted to go into our skilled nursing facility and call bingo for the vets (laughs) and just visit with them. Very, very down to earth. Another congressman in in some of my outpatient areas is Congressman Guy Reschenthaler, also a Navy JAG, served in Iraq, is now an elected official. So that's been very neat because you get the three of us together and we all just kind of look at each other and said, you know, they would just put the three of us in charge. We could get this straightened out in, in no time flat. And one's a Democrat, one's a Republican. And I, of course, am the completely apolitical and impartial SES <laughs> as required by duty sort of thing. But those have been the main JAGs I've run across there. I still have a handful of JAGs who I served with that we exchange Christmas cards and things like that and stay in touch on on LinkedIn. You bet. Yeah, I know of at least one other JAG who's become an SESer, and that's Joel Doolin with Federal Emergency Management Administration. He originally went in as a deputy general counsel, and he got moved over to operations as well. And I found, you know, two things we have in common. One, we're both Pittsburgh or suburbs of Pittsburgh guys. So we're both from the city of champions. I have to put that plug in there. And the second thing is we're both enterprise guys. I was on the first deployment after enterprise finally emerged from the yards and we deployed in 1996. So, wow. yeah. So there's another, another connection point between the two of us. There you go. Absolutely. My predecessor on Enterprise was kind enough to invite me out to a one-day Tiger cruise when the families were able to come on and everything before it went into the yards for its like three or four years slept. And I was the JAG while it was in the yards there. Yeah. So Don, we're we're about the end of our, our uh, time. Is there any other concluding thoughts you have that I didn't tap into or are we good? 
Not at all. JAG was such a great part. Act one of my career, thoroughly enjoyed it. It prepared me for act two and three. I'm still having fun and can't thank you enough for uh, chatting with me. Your podcast is a joy to connect to some people I haven't seen or heard from in quite a while and learning from a whole bunch of other folks uh, who I've only gotten to know through your podcast. So this is a great service, Tom. Thanks so much and best of luck to you. Thanks, Don Koenig. When a door closes, a window opens. And two, the best is still yet to come even after you leave the service. So Don, thanks again. All righty. Take care now. You have a good night. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.